Hello, fellow fiends. Welcome to another episode of Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces. I am your host, Cassiopeia. Don't forget, you can catch me on your favorite podcast listening platform and or YouTube every Friday. And if you are a subscriber, you can catch me every other Tuesday with bonus episodes. Um, if you do subscribe to the Patreon or the Anchor for just as low as $5 a month, you can get access to bonus episodes, early access to the weekly episodes. Um, you get a mention in the uh, weekly uh, call-outs, uh, the merch discount, and that is actually good on everything in the shop on the website. And you also get a welcome box uh, with some thank you swag. So... Yeah, it's a little nice. Um, thank you for all of the support. Um, if you'd like to support without subscribing, you can actually do that by following on social media, subscribing to the YouTube page, um, liking, commenting, sharing, um, just listening and watching. Um, that helps as well. Um, I do have a cash app and I do have a Venmo and I'll throw that up on the screen for you as well. So you have all of that information at your hands. Um, the candle line also is available with the creepy cases and spooky spaces, uh, since, um, I am going to be adding to that soon. I've actually been playing around with some fragrances and I'm really excited to get those launched. Um, and don't forget if you are a fellow content creator or if you own a business or anything like that, and you would like to advertise with creepy cases and spooky spaces, reach out to me at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com. I actually have some really good uh, budget-friendly ad space packages available. So if you're interested in that, just go ahead and reach out and we will get that going. Um, so let's get started on today's episode. Um, in June of 1980, now Alan Gore is an electronic conglomerate and a major defense contractor. And he's out of town on a business trip. Now, a few hours after arriving to his destination, he decides to call home and check in on his wife, Betty. Now, they recently had a new baby, and Betty had been a little overrun with anxiety, and she didn't really like when Alan was away on business, um, but there was no answer at home, so it didn't really strike him as odd because maybe she was just tending to the baby or they did have an older daughter as well. Um, maybe she had run out for some things. Uh, maybe she was getting some sleep while the girls were down for a nap because we know how important that is <laughs> or just busy around the house. Now, only throughout the day, Alan actually made several attempts to call home and talk to Betty, but there was no success in getting anyone on the phone. And he kind of be, started to become worried at this point. So he called a couple of friends, um, neighbors, and asked them to check in on the girls and on the house just to, just to be sure everything was okay. And so Richard Parker went over and checked and he came back and said everything seemed fine. The lights were on inside the house and he could see inside the garage because the door was open so the car was home 
And Alan asked him, you know, go check again because it would be really odd that Betty would just leave the garage door open while he was away and especially at night. So Richard Parker and two other neighbors went over and they actually found the door to the home unlocked. And that was when they were a little concerned. Um, upon entering the home, Richard was actually drawn to a bedroom because he heard whimpering. And he actually found six-month-old Bethany, which was their new daughter, crying in her crib. And you could tell that she was severely dehydrated. She hadn't had anything to eat um, in several hours. And she had a full diaper. Now, while Richard actually took Bethany to his house so his wife could kind of tend to her, the other two men searched the home and they found most of the rooms empty until they came across the utility room, like the laundry area. Um, it was here that they found Betty Gore on the floor. She was covered in blood and it was clear that she had been brutally murdered. Now, it wasn't long before her murderer was arrested, but why were they able to walk free? This week's creepy case is that one of Betty Gore. Eileen Pomeroy was born on January 9th, 1950 in Harper, Kansas to Bob and Bertha Pomeroy. She had two brothers, Ron and Richard. Now, not much about her early life has really been made public, but Betty was known for her beautiful, warm Hollywood smile and her caring and friendly personality. Now, Betty met Alan Gore in Kansas, and their friends and family actually found them to be an interesting pair. You see, Alan was rather plain, kind of small and shy, with a receding hairline. But Betty was absolutely head over heels in love with him. Now, the couple married in January 1970 and had their first child, Elisa, in 1975. And in 1977, they moved into the Dallas suburbs. Alan took a job with Rockwell International while Betty took her dream job as a teacher. And she was teaching fifth grade at R.C. Dodd Middle School. Now, life was going pretty good for the Gores. They had great jobs, um, they were active in their church, they were active in their community, and they had great friends. Now, Betty and Alan actually met and became close friends with Candy and Pat Montgomery, an electrical engineer who also moved to the area around the same time as they did. First, United Methodist Church of Lucas, um, her and Candy uh, both sang in the choir. Um, they helped with youth studies and they both had daughters around the same age. Now, after Elisa was born, Betty never really seemed quite the same. She just couldn't get back to the normal um, 
kind of fun-loving self that she was before and just couldn't really seem to find that full, true happiness. She would visit her doctor and was told that it was most likely postpartum depression. And of course, at this time, you know, not much was really known about postpartum depression. So her doctor would usually just send her on her way, telling her that she'd be fine. And sometimes he would even be oh so kind to subscribe her with Valium because medication is always the answer, right? So things actually only got worse for Betty in 1978 when she became pregnant with her second child, Bethany. Now, she retreated into herself almost completely. Work became more difficult, and she actually started to attend church services and events just less and less. The Gores were miserable in their private life, and their sex life had actually dwindled down to basically nothing. And Betty became emotional and paranoid when Alan would travel for work, and she just could not deal with being alone. Now, Alan was kind of at his wit's end on how to help her. And when Candy Montgomery approached Alan after a church event one night, asking if he would be interested in, affair, in an affair, telling him, quote, I've been thinking about you a lot, and it's really bothering me, and I don't know whether I want you to do anything about it or not. I'm very attracted to you, and I'm tired of thinking about it, so I wanted to tell you. Now, what was Alan to do? Now, I'll tell you what he should have done. You know, be a man, be faithful, be loyal to your wife and your children. And, you know, your wife is clearly struggling. And, like, leave this woman alone. Tell her no, tell her to go find somebody else, and you go and work on your life. Rant over. <laughs> So Candy was actually the opposite of Betty in many ways. She was laid back, easygoing, she was perky, friendly, she was still active in the community, she was active in the church, um, and she was also married, as I stated, and she had two children of her own. Now, like Alan, Candy wasn't happy in her marriage. Um, at 28 years old, she wasn't ready to deny herself sexual pleasure. She felt an affair would give her something to look forward to. Um, it would be a breath of fresh air in her stale day-to-day, -day, and it would help her feel sexy and wanted again. Now, Alan was actually a little shocked at first, but after not being able to get Candy off his mind, it didn't take him long to call her and to discuss her proposition. He actually went over to her house, and together they did a um, pros and cons list, and a do's and don'ts and rules that they would abide by. Um, first off, no strings attached, no I love yous, um, no leaving uh, one spouse for the other. This was just going to be about sex. They agreed to meet at a hotel outside of town where they couldn't be seen or caught or anything, and they would split the cost of the room. Sounds pretty simple, right? 
Now, for several months, they actually met up at the Como Motel. Candy actually looked forward to their bi-weekly meetups, and the rendezvous made her feel more alive than anything else had before. Now, each time they met, she would prepare a lunch cooked at home, and she made sure that she had her best lingerie clean and pressed. Now, after a few months, the affair ended up surpassing beyond the sexual nature. Uh, Candy and Alan began to confide in each other. Uh, they laughed together, and at times they didn't even have sexual relations. They would just sit and talk. Now, for a few months, all Candy could think about were her meetings with Alan. But she felt she was getting in too deep, and so they cut off the affair. Now, this only lasted a short time because they picked that affair right back up and it just wasn't the same exciting time as it was before, according to Candy. Now, she says that she kind of felt the spark had fizzled out. Uh, she was distracted and said that the sex wasn't as good. And Alan felt guilty for leaving Betty at home all of the time to handle the household basically by herself, as he should have. Now, one night, uh, Betty actually wanted to be intimate with Alan, but he just didn't have the stamina after spending the afternoon with Candy. And he told her that he just wasn't up for it. And she began to cry and told him that she felt he didn't love her anymore. Now, Alan called Candy and told her that he needed to end the affair. He didn't want to hurt Betty and he wanted to get his life back in order, and he couldn't do it while he was juggling the two of them. And he also knew that Betty was going to need more help with newborn Bethany. Now, Candy made the final decision, telling Alan, look, um, it seems like you're not really wanting to cut the affair officially. You're just kind of um, talking about how you feel guilty. But so she told him that she would leave him alone and she wouldn't call him or try to see him anymore. Now, around this time, Alan and Betty attended a marriage encounter. And a marriage encounter is usually a counseling retreat that's done through the church. And she told Candy how it really helped them rekindle their romance and that things were actually better than ever. Now, with the affair behind them, the families continued on with their lives. Um, only things were about to take a deadly turn. Now, Friday, June 13th, 1980. Alan was out of town on a business trip. He had called numerous times with no answer from Betty. Later, he called Richard Parker and Lester Taylor, who went over to the home to check on Betty and the children. He also called Candy to ask if she had talked to Betty, and she told him that, yeah, she had seen her that morning around 10 a.m., and everything was fine. Now, at first, everything seemed fine. Lights were on in the home, the car was in the garage, but they then found the front door unlocked. Now, upon entering the home, Richard heard crying from one of the bedrooms and went in and found six-month Bethany uh, in her crib with a full diaper and in clear distress. Now, they cautiously searched the rest of the home, coming upon the laundry room, which was a gruesome scene. Betty lay on the floor of the blood-spattered room. 
Now I will tell you um, the details. I'm not going to get into too bad, but um, uh, listener discretion is advised because they're a little, they're a little, they're a little gruesome. So there were 41 axe wounds to Betty's body. 40 of which were later confirmed to have occurred while she was still alive. And 28 of those hits were to her face and head. And her face was so disfigured that she was barely recognizable. Now, the citizens of Wiley were terrified. Things like this didn't happen in their town. And locksmiths and gun dealers were working overtime. Now, investigators first believed that the savage murder had been inspired by The Shining, which was actually released about three weeks before, if I remember correctly. And if you're not familiar with the film, the lead character goes after his wife and child with an axe. Now, Collin County Sheriff Deputy Steve Defebaugh told people in an interview for an episode of People Magazine Investigates, quote, it looked like a scene from a horrible film. It was Friday the 13th. Our thought was we had a copycat of the movie, The Shining. And Dr. Irv Stone told Oxygen during an episode of Snapped that it was a vicious set of blows to the body, the face, the arms, the head, the torso, and even into the legs. Although the murder happened at the same time as the movie being released, as much as they wanted to blame a transient or someone just kind of passing through, the fact that there was no forced entry and the door was locked, it was determined that Betty's killing wasn't random. Now, investigators were put off by Alan's subdued reaction. Uh, most who have just found their spouse had been murdered are usually sad or angry or they rage about wanting the case to be solved. But how about this man is in shock and people all react differently and our grief is not for the world to see. So whenever I hear things like this, it's kind of frustrating because you should never focus too much on how people are reacting to the news because you're, you never know how your body will react to that kind of shock. Um, he also, I mean, he was pretty, um, cooperative too, even though he did deny having an affair, but he actually called back and confessed, um, that he did have an affair, but it had been over for several months. Now it was found that the killer actually tried to clean up the murder scene, but gave up. And they also took a shower in the home. A sandal print was found next to Betty's body, and it was smaller, so they thought it was either a smaller man or a female who did the killing. A thumbprint was also left. Now, just a couple of weeks later, on June 27th, police arrested Betty's best friend, Candy Montgomery, and charged her with murder. Candy hired on Don Crowder as her defense attorney and immediately confessed to the murder of Betty Gore, except she claimed self-defense. Now, for four months later, in October, during the high-profile eight-day trial, Candy told the story. Well, her side of it anyway, because, I mean, that's all we have. So what else can we really go on? But let's dive in. 
Now, according to Candy, she visited Betty that morning. Um, Elisa, Betty's older daughter, had been staying with them, and they actually wanted her to stay another night so they could go see Star Wars at the drive-in theater. Elisa had swim classes the next day, so Candy said that she could take her, but she needed to go pick up her swimsuit as, you know, she would be taking her to the class and wouldn't be swinging by the house first. Now, the women had made small talk for a bit. Uh, Candy saw the dogs, uh, the two, the family's two cocker spaniels. And when Betty, or when Candy told Betty she needed to head back to the church, she claims that Betty confronted her about the affair. Now, at first, uh, Candy had tried to deny it, but Betty presented letters and cards that she had given to Alan and that she knew um, that there was something going on. Now, Candy decided at this point it was best to just come clean and admitted to Betty that yes, she and Alan had had an affair, but it was done and over with and it had been for a while. She told investigators that that's when Betty left the room um, only to return with an ax in her hands. And she claims that at this point she blacked out. And she actually had to undergo hypnotherapy to remember the events. She says that Betty had originally set under hip hypnosis. She says that Betty had originally set the axe down, but as Candy began to apologize, uh, Betty flew into a rage, swinging the axe, ready to kill her if she could. Now, the two women begin struggling over the axe. Candy is struck in the head and then her um, left foot's middle toe. She says that she began pleading for her life, and this is when Betty began to shush her to quiet her down. <laughs> now, Candy stated that this reminded her of how her abusive mother would shush her when she was younger, and something in her just snapped and she wrestled the axe from Betty and just started swinging. She said that Betty kept trying to get up, uh, which any normal person who was now in a fight for their lives would do, especially when she has a baby in the next, not in the next room, but just a few doors down and another child that she has to, you know, survive for. But Candy says that she feared for her life. Um, you mean after you've just knocked her how many times with an axe, you're still like in fear for your life from this woman? Come on. Now, Candy hit her again and again and again, a total of 41 times. And she basically claimed that she just could not control herself. Now, a psychiatrist stated that Candy had a dissociative reaction triggered by childhood trauma when Betty shushed her. The prosecution argued, and rightfully so, that Candy could have left at any time rather than bludgeon Betty to death. Now, after killing Betty, Candy tried to clean up the murder scene but gave up pretty quickly. She then took a shower fully clothed 
at Betty's house, um, washed the blood from her, drove home in those wet clothes, leaving Bethany crying in her crib. She changed her clothes, throwing her outfit in the wash, and returned to church to go about her day like nothing happened. And she actually led a child's, like one of the children's Bible classes, with one of those children being Betty's daughter, Elisa. Now, it only took the jury four and a half hours to return with a verdict on October 30th. And they shocked and outraged the family, members of the court, and the public when they read not guilty. Candy Montgomery was acquitted and walked free. Now, the town was some, somehow, and this, I find this to be crazy, they were divided on this verdict because some people say that the guilt that she has to live with is justice enough. She took a mother, a young mother at that, from her two children and her husband. But the family, along with very many others, don't agree. They believe that this was cold-blooded murder out of jealousy because she just didn't want to let Alan go. And she just shouldn't be able to just walk free and basically just free and clear of nothing. Besides, Alan said that Betty had never confronted him or even indicated knowing about the affair. And she had just sent a letter, a letter to her parents and mentioned her good friend Candy and how they had a great friendship. Now, during and after the trial, Pat stood by Candy's side and supported her, which I just blows my mind. They moved to Georgia, um, but the marriage didn't last long, and they actually ended up divorcing. Uh, Candy went back to her maiden name, Candace Wheeler, and worked with her daughter, Jenny, as a mental health counselor. <laughs> um, Pat now goes by James, but he still lives in Georgia. Alan Gore remarried um, before Candy even went to trial, which to each their own, but um, wow, dude. So he actually lost custody of Elisa and Bethany to Betty's parents, which that's probably for the best. Um, and he actually uh, soon after that became estranged, but it seems that they've, they may have re reconciled recently. Um, Elisa is married and lives in Kansas, and Bethany lives in Las Vegas. Don Crowder, the attorney who represented Candy, committed suicide in 1998. Um, I'm not sure why or if it was connected somehow, but he doesn't seem to be, um, and I get it, as a defense attorney, you do what your job is, but he, uh, I don't know if it's connected, um, if he was just guilty. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I personally agree that Candice, Candace Montgomery or Candace Wheeler, whoever she is today, got away with murder. I can't say why she killed Betty. Um, it could have been the jealous theory or it could have been um, to keep her from telling people if she actually did um, confront her and know about the affair. Because what happened to those letters and cards that Betty presented her with? They weren't found in the home, I don't believe. I didn't find that in my research. Um, but it's not anything that showed up in the evidence. 
because uh, I feel if they were found in the home, now I know Candy could have taken them and destroyed them, but mm, um, I still feel that would have come up somewhere. Now, I really just don't understand how she was found not guilty. Um, she could have left any time when Betty first confronted her. She could have went outside and called for help at any time. Um, but instead, she decided to take an axe and murder Betty Gore and hit her 41 times. Um, even when she came to, she didn't go for help either. She also didn't call police. She left Bethany in her crib crying, so she knew that there was a six-month-old baby in just a few doors down in the same home. She just killed her mother, and she left that poor baby there, and who knows what could have happened to the baby at that point. Um, she flat out lied about the entire scene because Alan called her and asked her and she said, oh, I saw at 10 a.m. that day, but everything was fine. And she knew this woman was laying in her house dead. Now, what about her injuries? A lot of people bring that up. Like, well, she was injured. She had, she was hit in the head. She was, you know, hit in the toe. She could have done those to herself. I've researched many cases where the suspect was trying to cover up and gave themselves superficial wounds. And I mean, like, Candy was smaller than Betty. So it's also kind of a surprise that she could have kind of out, um, outstrength her or overpowered her um is the word i was looking for um so i find it kind of odd that she could have just completely taken this woman down and i st I, st I will stand by the fact that i think it was murder whether it was jealousy or whether she was trying to keep her quiet um and even if you want to say it wasn't first degree murder because it wasn't you know planned or premeditated but she should have got something. She shouldn't have been able to just live her life and walk free um, with just absolutely nothing. No consequences. Now, um, tell me your thoughts. Do you think it was murder? Do you think it was self-defense? Also, just like every other episode, do you live in the area and have um, any kind of information or... Um, evidence, so to say, that wasn't um, listed here in the episode. Um, leave a comment below um, on the video here. Um, as always, if you are going to comment, please keep everything respectful. We are all um, fiends together here. And uh, yeah, on that note, I will see you next crime. Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces with Cassiopeia is a Pizza and Pigtails production. All episodes are researched, written, and edited by yours truly. You can find new episodes every Friday with bonus episodes coming out every other Tuesday. You can find the podcast on your favorite listening platform or now you can find it on YouTube as well. Don't forget to follow along on social media, creepycases.spookyspaces, for all future news, updates, and maybe some content that you won't find on the podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get access to bonus content, early access to content, and 
a couple of little thank you swag. If you'd like to contact me about appearing on a future episode, maybe you would like to suggest your own creepy case or spooky space, or maybe you'd also like to reach out about ad space, you can reach me directly at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com or feel free to reach out through those social media platforms as well. And as always, see you next crime.